Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Lifters League podcast, the Strength and Muscle Science podcast. Um, in this episode, me and Gus talk with Haley Forrest, who is a sports dietitian who blew our minds with a heap of stuff. Um, you've been working with her for a while as well, haven't you, Gus? So, Haley is uh, my sports dietitian who I work with in powerlifting in powerlifting mainly just for my own competitive reasons and uh you know i apply the same principles i do when i'm trying to find information and trying to find smart people and yeah she absolutely blew our mind um so a bit of background with her about her um so she is a she has a master's degree in in uh, dietetic studies at from the university of Queensland, a Bachelor of Health Science, um, ISSN Sports, uh, Sports Nutrition Specialist, ASCA Strength and Conditioning Coach, and also a registered sports dietitian. So she has huge experience in bodybuilding, uh, working with strength coaches and strength athletes, performance athletes, fighters, all sorts of things, all sorts of areas, and her expertise is in biochemistry and metabolism. And the major thing that we discussed in this episode um, that she, was an enti- entirely new concept to me when she had tried to apply some methods, some of these methodologies to me, is supercompensation with dieting. And this effect absolutely put a whole perspective on the way I approach uh, nutrition when it comes to sports performance that well i guess you're gonna have to hear for it yourself because yeah i mean it's quite a big topic but yeah if you want some serious performance enhancement um and muscle gain through metabolism manipulation then these are some of the some of the ideas or methods to look into awesome all right guys uh enjoy the episode I feel like I ramble and go off on big tangents a lot. That's the point. Yeah, well, that's what, that's, that's, what I, that's what I end up doing in my work in my workshops. I have when I do my workshops, I always have the time I need to be at by the next dot point. Yeah. Because I'll always be stuck on a tangent on some dot point up here, um, and then I realise I've already gone like five topics ahead of myself. <laughs> so I have to keep myself accountable when it comes to. I, I I'm the worst wormhole person. What? I'm the worst wormhole person in the world. Like I can literally blink and 15 minutes have gone by and I've been talking about this like thing that's not even related. I'm awful. Um, all right, yeah, so you can, you can move the, move it around. So you want it, see how it's just from, just in front of your face? Like yep. That? Yep, sounds great. We're good to go. Wanted I, what I wanted to talk about was, it was actually quite fascinating when you first brought up the super compensation when it come to came to dieting. Yep. So I've always known the concept with it behind, um, with strength and conditioning. And like as per the textbooks, it's like maintaining a level of fatigue or stimulus that kind of pushes or upregulates recovery responses. But I hadn't thought about it with diet, but I mentioned to a few people and they, and I remember it, it happening to myself after post bodybuilding comp I did and, and a few other people where they, gained a heap of muscle and gained a heap of strength 
Um, I think my like my bench press at the time went from like like one forty to one seventy in like a matter of like two months, and I think I added something like like thirty or forty kilos to my deadlift Jesus. in that in that period of time. Yeah. yeah. So I haven't experienced gains like that so, since. So just just for people listening who have no idea what we're talking about, what is supercompensation as a as a concept? Like as a top level concept, obviously we're going to dive into it. But uh, would you call it supercompensation with di- with diet? It is. It's a glycogen supercompensation. Just um, glycogen, was it? That's the mechanism in which you have those performance benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a multitude of different metabolic factors that end up supercompensated, if you will, from being undernourished. So essentially, we put someone in an undernourished environment, which is a diet. For a period of time, when you're in an undernourished environment, your your body will adapt to it. Mm-hmm. So you'll upregulate metabolic enzymes to enable you to get more out of the nutrition. What that results in is when you go to reintroduce that same level of nutrition that you started with, you have an increased capacity in order to deal with that. So you get a super compensated effect, um, which in regards to sports performance, we see that with, you know, increased lifts, um, increased muscle gain because the muscle gain happens when you increase the stimulus in combination with increasing those metabolic factors that result in increased lean mass mm-hmm. because you've been in that undernourished environment, you'll have um, more result happening from it. That, okay, right. So this is really interesting. So. From, from a general population point of view, is this the mechanism that I remember you telling me, Gus, when, when it comes to diet, obviously you've got the, the general I want to lose weight diets. People who chronically under-eat, that's when they start plateauing <coughs> and they seesaw, right? Because basically they've adapted to the lower calorific intake. Is that right? And what you're doing is you're getting somebody there and then springboarding them back to where they were. Yes and yes and no. Okay. It's it's also what attributes to dieting is easy. Yeah. Reverse dieting is not easy. Right. Um, so people will sort of lose weight quite easily and then they'll stack weight on very, very easily. Of course. Yeah. Um, with regards to people who chronically diet, you'll find that they'll chronically diet and then have periods of binging um, associated with it. Yeah. So part of that is physiological, part of that is psychological, and it's it's sometimes hard to tease out the difference between the two. So your body does metabolically adapt. So my business, um, it's, it's founded on that concept of metabolism is dynamic. So when you're constantly under eating, your, your body is metabolically designed to adapt to that so you don't starve to death. You think about the way that our genetics are designed and our physiolog- physiology is designed. We're designed for a hunters and gatherers lifestyle. Yeah. And up until you know the last 200 years or so, that's pretty much what we were doing where hunters and gatherers doesn't mean I'm eating paleo. What it means is food was available in surplus and then food was available not very much at all. So it's either Mm. feast or famine. So if you think about in in a hunter's gatherer's lifestyle, if we're eating meat, there's not this constant ready supply of cows walking past. You'll have a herd come past, you eat a lot of the herd and then the herd disappears for a while. In that time frame, our body ad- adapts. So our metabolism is designed to store energy, store food, and then in times where it's not available, 
we can serve, which results in metabolically we'll have a decrease in um, metabolic rate. That can be a variety of different functions throughout the body that will slow down in order to prevent wasting away and dying, essentially. Mm. That's not really the environment in which we live now, but our genetics and metabolism hasn't exponentially changed in the last 200 years, our environment has, and we're still trying to um, sort of offset that. With regards to how that works in a uh, metabolic context, we'll have lots of food available, metabolism will increase, um, our food storage will our food storage, our storage of energy will increase, mm. so fat cells increase, um, things like your muscle stimulus will increase. So we'll put on muscle, we'll put on a whole heap of things in order to conserve and hold on to that energy. Then when that energy is not available, that food supply is not available our metabolism decreases and it initiates processes in the body in order to get you to stop burning so much energy. So lots of little things like when you're in an energy deficit or when there's not enough food available to maintain that energy level, your brain initiates little mechanisms to stop you burning so much. So who's ever been in a diet and felt not like doing very much? Right. You yeah. make every, every time, right? Every excuse in the world to sit on the couch and watch two hours of TV or four hours or six mm. hours, where when you're in an energy surplus, generally people won't do that. They'll move around. So you inadvertently end up burning a lot more incidental activity or incidental energy through incidental activity. Mm. So that energy conservation comes with um, your body. And it's lots of little things like you'll get little thoughts in your head when you're in an energy deficit, like, oh, this is hard. Stop working so hard. Oh, I'm tired. I just, my alarm's gone off at four o'clock in the morning. Oh, I'm too tired. This is so comfy in bed. I don't want to get out of bed. So that's what I meant when it's hard to tease out the difference between physiological and psychological um, because they're interrelated. You can't always stop those psychological things happening when they're influenced by the physiology. Right, so the, 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 the physiological response is to cause psychological responses as well. Absolutely, which is sometimes what sets people up with the being in that chronic diet and then binging. Holy shit, because you just get... So, so the, the common thing you get told is, well, it's a will... Right, willpower is usually the thing given to you, but your body's working against you in that regard, right? Willpower definitely comes into it, but there is a very big... Um, Psych physiological aspect of it. So just the mechanism of dieting itself will initiate your body's need to get energy back, which influences your psychology. Right. So sometimes you have to have like willpower or something that's flexible. You'll find in different points of your life, your ability to say yes and no to things are different. So when you're in a diet, put it into reference, when you're in a really aggressive diet, your willpower and ability to say no to a piece of chocolate may be a lot different to say we're all sitting here now, we're all pretty pretty well fed, have breakfast. If someone put a chocolate on the table, it's not really that appetising. Or um, your willpower to say no to that right now might be pretty, pretty good. Mm. So willpower is something that's flexible based on physiology. So coming... Thinking about um, with coming back to the um, that supercompensation effect. Side, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we just went on the, one of those rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah, go on. Um, 
so the main effect that's happening there is the glycogen uptake, the capacity to for for glyc glycogen uptake. That's uh, correct. Yeah, glycogen uptake and glycogen storage. So if if we said you had you had multiple responses, so you after you're in a chronic diet stage where we both want to put on, we're more hypersensitive to putting on mass. body body mass, body fat, um, store more glycogen. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're doing the refeed and you're focusing more on the carbohydrate <coughs> side of thing, is is that trying to negate the effect of the fat gain from fat, or is it just? Um, not really. So what we sort of talked about is kind of relevant to this whole process. So what happens with the nature of dieting is you do see metabolic suppression. Um, with that refeeding, it's not about going back to maintenance because that maintenance level is, it doesn't exist. It, that maintenance level is fluctuating. And because your metabolism isn't stock standard, it isn't the same all the time. That fluctuates. There's no way to determine where that maintenance is. So with that hypercompensation effect and that refeeding effect, what we're trying to do is we're trying to refeed metabolism back to its high level. So you'll see with dieting metabolic suppression, with that refeeding, we want to return that metabolism back to what that high levels are or even higher than before because if we're increasingly mass, your metabolic rate is going to be higher because there's more metabolic tissue. So we can't go back to a huge amount of food straight away because that huge amount of food straight away from being in a diet essentially tells your body, oh, we're in feast store because we've been in famine before. So it you hold on to more mass. So we need to increase uh, a little bit. And how we increase that is not just as simple as how many calories we're increasing. We also need to look at it in reference to what your training stimulus is like, like what your body's um, burning, as well as what your metabolic stimulus is like. So your carbohydrates are one way in which we see that um, metabolic return back because it's your carbohydrate metabolism is sort of, I call it the center of your metabolic um, universe. It's your, your Krebs cycle, TCA cycle, whatever you want to call it, is sort of at the center of your metabolism and that will slow down as your carbohydrate intake will slow down, which will have a variety of metabolic responses outside of that. So you think about it like a big um, wheel in the center of metabolic cogwheel machinery. There are a multitude of different chemicals that shoot off that that are going to affect a multitude of other metabolic processes. So it's like a cascading effect. So if we're slowing that down, it's gonna result in a whole heap of other metabolic processes slowing down, which results in and overall metabolic suppression. Mm -hmm. So we want to see an increase in that metabolism. With that process, we also need to create some storage of carbohydrates in the muscles themselves. Because if we have, you know, if we're looking at strength training specifically, you're predominantly using your glycolytic systems um, and your phosphate creatine system. Phosphate creatine, Mm -hmm. we modify through meat consumption. And if you're taking creatine, that's not really affected so much in this context. Um, so it's predominantly looking at your glycolytic systems, which are how much um, carbohydrates or or glycogen, if you will, are stored within the muscle bellies themselves. If you're looking with um, long-term dieting, you'll have that metabolic suppression, and then your body says, refeed. We've got all these extra food, food available. If we're consuming extra carbohydrates, we wanna be able to store as much as we can into that muscle to peak that performance, 
but it's also being used to increase those metabolic um, machinery or those metabolic mm. cogwheels to increase your metabolism. So we need to ensure that we've got enough of both processes happening. So, so what's the what what's the direct application behind this theory then? So, what what you're saying is obviously the carbs are low once you're while you're in the cutting phase. Are you talking about tapering them when you're in the refeed? Yeah, or, when we yeah. refeed, we taper them back up. Right. Okay. So, what res what responses are you, are you looking for? Just is it is it a maintenance of weight or like their, I guess, biofeedback and how they're feeling? And so, what what responses are you looking for to know that you can keep <coughs> keep feeding? Keep feeding. Um, physiologically, how they're feeling. Right. Okay as well as what their weight's doing. In order to see a change in glycogen levels within the body itself, you need to see a change in overall weight because when you store glycogen within the muscle, you also store water within the muscle. So it's how they're feeling physiologically, how they're looking. So you'll see with you know strength-based athletes, they generally have a, a fair whack of muscle on their frame. Um, leading into a refeed, they'll start looking a lot flatter and they'll often say, I, I'm I'm feeling small, I'm feeling... I'm feeling small. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... you. <laughs> Sorry, this is funny because you said the, those exact words to me because you were recently on it. I presume you were going through this process, right? Mm. And you were, he, was like, he was in there and he was like, I'm, I'm down to X amount of calories. He was freaking out because he was like, I'm not just not happy that I'm... That feels small. It's like a mass. phase. It's like a phase. It's like a phase that you start dieting. You haven't lost any fat yet, but your muscles feels like they start to shrink. It's like so now I'm just. I just feel like I'm just fatter now. <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I mean, I, I predominantly work with um, aesthetic athletes and, and strength mm. athletes. So when we're looking with aesthetic athletes, because they have such a um, higher focus on how they look. Course, I yeah. I will know when someone needs a refeed because they will say to me. I'm feeling really shit. I'm feeling really small and they'll start getting in their head about it. Freaking out. Um, yeah. Start freaking out. And, you know, like 12 hours into a refit, they're like, oh, I'm swole now. And, <laughs> and you do, you see a muscle pump effect because the muscles fill up and with, you know, how someone aesthetically looks, it's not about, it's not always about how much muscle on their frame as well as, you know how pumped the muscles are so everyone always feels better after they've you know gone and done, done a gym session and a pump session um how many guys go out on a friday night do a quick chest pump session at the gym before heading out oh, to the man, town yeah. oh, yeah. um it's that offset of um you know getting that pump within the muscle which you see with the with the glycogen replenishment as well as it happening with the, with the water storing in there too so what what happens? You know, there's that time, you said like we we had we had a bit of a refeed, and then I end up like, I think I end up dropping end up dropping weight, even though we added like, you know, four hundred grams of extra carbs mm. into the diet. So yeah, so there's obviously it's it's it's, ca it's counterintuitive, you know, calories up, weight down. Right. Yeah. What's happening there? <laughs> Logically, it doesn't sound like it makes sense, but this mm. comes back to metabolism is dynamic. Mm. That I never usually give someone a one-day refeed. It's always multiple days in a row because what we often find, um, depending on the size of the athlete, some athletes we can get glycogen saturation within 12 to 24 hours. Some mm. people it takes 96 hours with, and that's dependent on a variety of different factors, including you know the um, genetics of that um 
athlete, the muscle within their frame itself, the stimulus, environmental stimulus and whatnot. Um, when we're looking at refeeding, if we're talking about, you know, like a strength-based athlete, someone with a decent whack on their fa- um, frame, within that first 12 to 24 hours, we're only seeing a change in that metabolic response. So think about it back to when I was talking about the the Krebs cycle, TCA cycle being the center of your metabolic universe. We're, re- we're feeding into that. So we we're, that machinery has slowed down and turned down, which has slowed down a whole heap of other metabolic processes. So with metabolism, when you're in an energy deficit, a long-term chronic energy deficit, your body, your body essentially says, we're only going to prioritize the metabolic processes that are responsible for immediate survival. Everything else outside of that, we're gonna slow down a little bit because it's not that important. So things like, for example, um, if there's not enough food in your environment, the priority of making offspring is not that great. So hormone production will dampen natural hormone production. Mm-hmm. So you think think about in regards to a strength-based athlete, um, how important things like your hormones are in regards to recovery and growth. They contribute something massively. It's why we have you know like a lot of um, exogenous hormone supplementation in order to modify these things. Mm. Um, if we're having a natural decrease in that process because your body says, oh, there's not enough food in my, in my environment to survive, it's probably not a good idea to make babies because we're just gonna have to feed them as well. So your hormones will start to decrease. And people will often see this as a symptomatic response. It's really easy in, in women to see because they will get stuff like a loss of menses. Yep. In men, it's not as simple because you don't get this really inconvenient monthly um, cycle that shows whether or not your hormones has decreased. It usually results in things like your sex drive has changed. So women see this as well, but sex drive is something that, um, you know, has a lot of environmental impacts to it as well. So your interest in sex will change through a bulking. Men <clears throat> will probably feel like it's of high interest um, through the back end of a diet they'll often say, it's not even in in any context of my mind, I'm just too tired, Mm. which is personality-wise probably not normal for them. This is, you know, uh, a generalisation. But when we're looking at um, reverse dieting, natural hormones decrease. This is just one metabolic process, for example. Within that first um, sort of refeed, you start seeing a change in stuff like that. So it's almost instantaneous with men. Within a couple of days, they're like, my sex drive is back or my sex drive has changed heaps within that first couple of days. When we're looking at carbohydrate refeeding, it's not as simple as going, oh, we're getting more carbs. We're going to put it straight into the muscle. It's it's going to start feeding into those metabolic processes such as hormone production um, that have suppressed over time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right, so it's basically it's not all of that energy that's accounted for with the general calorific equation isn't going toward the normal places it would, which is why you're seeing a net loss. Yeah. Right. Okay. Why we're seeing a net loss? There is also another the factor. Because the cycle and all those cycles are working harder. Correct. There is also another factor that happens um, because you've been in an energy deficit. The m- metabolic enzymes throughout that Krebs cycle, for example, have upregulate, upregulated because there's been less carbohydrate. So it needs to be more efficient at doing that. 
so that when you reintroduce those carbohydrates, you've got basically increased metabolic um, machinery efficiency. Mm. So things will run through and churn through really, really quickly. Um, another thing that happens as well, when you've been in an energy deficit, I talked earlier on before about you get really tired and you get all these little thoughts in your head saying, stop working so hard. Oh, this is hard. Everything's tired. You start to get a little bit of extra food and everyone's done this. What happens when you give lollies to a small child? They go nuts. Carbohydrates, <laughs> when you've been in a carbohydrate deficit environment, it creates um, a sort of neurological response where it sends a pulse to your brain that says, we've got high performance fuels coming. When we've previously had all this feedback to our brain that has said, we don't have a lot of fuel available. So if you're suddenly getting all these messages to your brain that said, you've got more fuel, you can work harder, people inadvertently end up burning more energy because they're moving around a hell of a lot more because they're like, oh, I've got all this energy. I'm going to go wash the car. I'm going to vacuum the house. I'm going to um, do all this washing that's been building up for the last three weeks because I've just not wanted to deal with that and I'm too tired. Those five days, those five days you refed fed me, that was the best five days of training I've had, I don't know, almost ever. Yeah. <laughs> like... Um, I don't think I've ever done 275 for like three triples on the deadlift. Is that what, two, 210 for triple on the bench? Felt like I had like another three more in me. Wow. And the yeah. speed on my squat, I couldn't do reps on my squat because I had hip pain. But I had ended up like doing like 330 squat and it was just like, I had like 330 on my back end. I felt like, man, I got two eight. I got like 380 here today. Yeah. You know, and just in those, just in those days. So is that... Is that, is that, is that, well, is it, it's a mixture of psychology and physiology happening there, isn't it? Absolutely. So there's that, that extra um, glycogen load that happens, that extra fuel available, but it also comes down to that neurological effect of that feedback within your brain saying, we've got fuel available, we've got lots of fuel. So that's one of the reasons why within sports performance themselves, we target um, carbohydrates during exercise in order to create that feedback. So inadvertently when you exercise you get feedback to your brain that says we're we're running out of fuel so it's not necessarily we're running out of fuel on the muscle it's the blood your blood sugar levels are starting to run out of fuel mm. and within your brain itself your brain is captain of the ship it is priority number one survival of your brain it doesn't care that you want to put muscle on or, or mm. do all these other things it wants to survive so if it's fuel source is running out because it doesn't have a storage shelf of fuel its fuel cell is your blood sugar levels. As they start to decrease, it will send feedback to your brain to start influencing your actions so that you stop doing the things that's contributing to its fuel source decreasing, aka your blood sugar levels dropping. So as you um, start exercising and continue through that exercise, your blood sugar levels will drop, you'll get feedback to your brain and you'll start getting all those little straight thoughts in your head going, oh, this is hard, this is really heavy, oh my God, what am I doing? Oh my God, this is painful. All those little things that impact performance. It's like when we introduce the carbohydrates, we um, create this little pulse in your tongue that switches off that feedback loop. And that little pulse says, we've got fuel available, come and keep working harder. So it sort of interrupts those stray little thoughts, which you think about it, having those carbohydrates and having that refuel is like having your own little personal trainer inside your head the whole time going, you can do this, you can work harder, you can lift harder, which combine that with I've actually physiological, physiologically got the fuel available in the muscles themselves. 
and a hypercompensation of those fuels because we've been able to store more because of that uh, secondary um, metabolic hypercompensation um, effect with storing glycogen, it means performance increases drastically because you've got the psychological aspect of it and you've got the physiological aspect of it. Your brain's literally talking to you to survive yeah. or use more. It's like, oh, we've got energy now, so you better go do some work. Totally. That's exactly what happens. Well, the, 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 obviously, when it comes to elite powerlifting, at the higher end, psychologically, it, it plays, a, it's just a massive role in it, right? Whether you think you can lift said weight, it plays a massive role. So that's a huge advantage to have, isn't it? it especially when the more elite you get, that matters well, more. Every right? time, it, we've had strength coaches and athletes on, and it's like the conversation always ends up being psychology there's yeah, so much so yeah. much psychology behind it and it's always like the limiting factor whether someone's going to make it or not yep because of their own internal dialogue and the way they approach and their willpower and whatever it actually i had another question with that hyper compensation oh that hyper or super compensation is that or uh, with the hyperglycogen load is that would that be the same with atp storages uh mm. Not necessarily. Um, ATP is, it's a bit more complicated because how much ATP that you have, there's a sort of negative feedback loop. So it's also a ratio between ATP and ADP. So ATP is an adenosine triphosphate, which is um, an adenosine molecule with three phosphates on it. ADP is adenosine diphosphate, which is two molecules on it. So the phosphates attached to the adenosine molecule are a highly reactive energy compound. So the way that energy works is you have an ATP molecule. When a phosphate molecule snaps off, it creates a big energy transference shift, which if you, say, for example, put that on a muscle fiber, you transfer a whole heap of energy for that phosphate snapping off, it creates contraction of that muscle fiber, um, which is responsible for you know, like movement, mm-hmm. right? Um, in order to increase ATP levels, it's relevant to the feedback of how many ADPs are left. So how many, so like that energy transference shift ha- has to happen in order for that ADP. So when there are high levels of ADP, your body will get feedback to say, put ATP through, uh, so put ADP through the electron transport chain to um spit out ADP, so to reattach that phosphate to create that high energy molecule. If we have high levels of ATP in the system, it creates that negative feedback loop that says to the electron transport chain to switch that machinery off so you stop producing ATP. Right, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's something that's really, really highly um, regulated. The, the only thing we can sort of we can't really modify ATP in itself because there's so many metabolic processes that regulate how much we have and it's relevant to how much we've used. So when there, when we've used a lot of ATP, we send a feedback loop that says we need more ATP. When we've got um, too much ATP, we send a feedback loop that says switch off ATP production. When we're talking about strength training, we are looking at different energy systems um, that we're trying to modify and creatine phosphate is one of those um methods because creatine phosphate sort of works similarly to ATP in regards to that phosphate when it breaks off creatine creates a highly reactive energy um, molecule energy transference. Um, We can modify creatine levels within the body to a certain uh, amount but over 
that, our body just sort of dumps it. So we can create a little bit of saturation, mm-hmm. but only to a certain extent. It's not an infinite supply. Otherwise, we end up with um, a chemical distribution issue. Can it be part of a part? Is, would you say it's part of the part of a like a a, a training supercompensation effect? If you're like training, because I do mean when I'm training training people, I'm holding that volume for as long as I can for generally, and then back off for a predicted amount of time depending on the individual and what I think their recovery is going to be to the point of the competition. So that's you know, that's what I'm doing when I'm working with coaches. Some people take longer to recover. Some people take a lot shorter. So I'll hold that volume as long as I can, hold that fatigue as long as I can, and then they get that compensation oh, affected. That's, that's a really complicated question. That's <laughs> nuance. That's, that's beyond just ATP. So we're looking at um, basically like fitness levels sort of in general. So when you're looking at recovery within that small window, you're looking at your oxidative systems as well as your um, uh, non-oxidative systems. So your phosphate creatine and non-oxidative. Oxidative are things like your your, um, endurance fibres. So a lot of that is determined on baseline physiology. So if you're someone that has a higher distribution of your type 2 muscle fibres, you're going to have a higher population of creatine phosphate because type 2 muscle fibres predominantly use creatine phosphate and um, glycolytic systems, so glycolysis, which half of that is non-oxidative, the other half is oxidative, requires oxygen in order to produce that. So the areas of energy that um, or energy production in the oxidative system as well as the non-oxidative system, they're all gateway controlled by metabolic enzymes. Those metabolic enzymes we can modify. We can't modify the ATP. ATP is the end currency of it. Mm. These are all the working um, chemicals that result in, in currency. We can modify these working chemicals and we can also modify the um, enzymes that catalyze these. With dieting, for example, we can modify the enzymes that catalyze these because you've been in an under undernourished environment it will create more of these enzymes to catalyze these because you need to be um, better at dealing with them or better at dealing with less of these. So if we have less of one chemical, um, the enzymes, they don't just like in the body work as a magnet towards it. They've got to randomly bounce around until they hit it. Um, So we need to increase those random bouncing moments to create that catalyst effect, which results in metabolic enzymes um, of, say, for example, the... um, non-oxidative process of um, glycolysis, the first breakdown of carbohydrates, that process then goes into an an oxidative process, the TCA cycle. We can increase those enzymes through stimulus, through um, creating a a break in the oxidative um, system because it goes through multiple different phases. It goes through a non-oxidative system and an oxidative system. So we can modify that with holding on that like we were just speaking about or we can modify that with nutrition itself so you can create a sense of fitness and recovery in there because the quicker it goes through that the quicker it can then recover from it as well um with holding on it yeah it's a it's a hard process to to say um we can modify so much with it. Some people naturally, genetically have a certain base point. So if we look at things like VO2 max, um, it's determined by baseline genetics and we can modify it to a percentage, but no more than that. 
Mm-hmm. So say, for example, um, two different bodies, even put under the same stimulus, like I could train as much as I want, I'm never going to get to the lifting capacity that you would, Gus, because we have very different baseline um, genetics. Mm. And similarly, if you decided one day, I don't know, you bumped your head and decided to be a marathon runner. Um, <laughs> you have to be a significant bump. Yeah. <laughs> Gus hates um, cardio. Yeah. Um, you're probably not going to be winning any marathons because you don't have the um, – baseline physiology when i'm talking about that i'm talking about muscle fiber distribution you don't have a high distribution of your type 1 endurance based fibers that are responsible for those sort of uh, sport events to create it so even if we um, did as much training as we wanted and and we hired the best marathon coach in the world you're still not going to win marathon sorry mate you know i used to do triathlon i used to do triathlon sure (laughs) really when I was about 77 kilos. <laughs> yeah, you, you were a different human, I guess. Yeah, very different. Mm. I just swayed very far to the other way. Do you, do you, <laughs> I don't know if this is applicable. Maybe it is. Do, do, you, do you see a benefit in um, general aerobic um, capacity and training when it comes to <laughs> strength athletes and these systems? Do you think... Because you're of the school of thought that, um, Gus, that cardio is kind of like a useless surplus that takes away from the training you need to do, right? Well, it's a ba- I would keep baseline. Yeah, right. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, how important how important is that baseline? For, and I'm just thinking in terms of recovery as well between sets and stuff. At what point does that start making a difference for you? It, it depends on what you're training for. Right. Yeah, I, was, I, think I was finding it hard to answer your question because yeah, it's I'm like not, it's a bad question. To be fair, it depends. Like, it depends who I'm. Yeah. It depends who I'm working. Who I'm working with. What their goals are and what mm. what phase and training we're in. And yeah, okay. You know, um, it, their work capacity. So some people I can get. People can do more work. Mm. And, and that can, comes down to their physiology and their their muscle fiber distribution on a genetic level. Mm. Yeah. So you know. I, I'll keep a very baseline, like I'm just walking. I might push the prowler or something like twice a week or something, you know. But you know, outrageous. Um, yeah. It's exhausting enough doing the training that I'm doing anyway. This is it. Do, do you do you ever so do you ever get clients come through and you take one look at them and you're like, yeah, this is, this ain't your sport, mate. Like, do you do you ever do? You ever, I mean, obviously, you would say it in that those words, but. Are there any people, obviously, and you're always going to help everybody improve because that's your job, but are there some people with unrealistic expectations versus their physio- physiology? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or is that, is that just, have I just described everyone? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll have client inquiries all the time. That'll be from the range of, uh, I'm a 60 kilo male and I want to put on 20 kilos of lean mass right. naturally yeah. in six weeks like man, this isn't achievable in six years <laughs> i do did on youtube so to um and then we have on the other context like i had an inquiry the other day that was a gentleman who was 150 kilos and wanted to lose 80 kilos in three months jesus yeah which is oh, also unrealistic expectations <laughs> yeah holy shit so yeah um i don't even know on the extreme and is even if that's even I sent back a reply to him with, let's just do some math and it's not even possible. I think the numbers that we've worked out, he'd have to be in a 6,000 calorie a day deficit 
in order to achieve though that result, which is not possible. Dead, Most right. people wouldn't even be on a diet of that. So he potentially may if it's 150 kilos, be eating 6,000 calories a day, but essentially he'd have to be on zero calories a day and metabolic suppression wouldn't, wouldn't be a thing. If metabolism didn't adapt, mm. you know, that may be possible, but he'd be very malnourished and undernourished, not literally eating any of water. What was is, so important he had to lose 80 kilos in three months? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I think people just have unrealistic expectations. They watch shows like The Biggest Loser and think that that's oh, a thing that. Oh, I can go. I can. Do, we used do to watch, you want to go down a rabbit hole? We used to watch so many. Fuck I think that show. We used to watch so. Actually, um, I used to train uh, Margie Cummings. She won the one of the biggest uh, biggest losers, and um, yeah. I, so I remember her. So I remember watching that, mm. and I can't remember at what point. I was watching it. It was maybe halfway through where it, it, something twigged in my brain that they're just torturing mentally ill people for entertainment. Like, yeah, it's none of it, none brutal, of the, nothing. So I've I've heard it all from her. She's there is nothing realistic about what they're doing on that show. Fucking nothing real. Nothing real. Their their weight loss over a week is not a week. Mm -hmm. It's it's over months. They're doing their before they even weigh in. They're getting as fat as they can. They're doing weight water cuts, extreme water cuts. Like she had like a um, uh, some MMA coach come out to teach her how to drop like 12, 12, 13, 14 kilos in water alone just for her final for her final weigh-in. I, I mean, I get, I mean, I get that because after you know, already financial return based on your weight on the scales and nothing else. Like just fuck your health. It was like, it was brutal, and the actual hosts there aren't there. Um, the new, the, the apparently d dietitian designed diets that are on the website are not what they follow. is not what they're following yeah, at all. Much, much less. Doesn't shock me. Yeah. I, there, there was one time where I, I remember there was at one point where I was like, God, oh, this, I'm uncomfortable watching this. There was a, <laughs> and this is way off in a wormhole, by the way. So sorry for anybody who doesn't give a shit, but they, lo they locked them in a room for a, a time period right, in a room full of fucking Tim Tams and stuff, and they were about six weeks into pretty much starvation, right? And they threw them in this room, and they basically said, you know, you get a bonus if you manage to not eat anything. And you're watching these people who are chronically obese and have been for most of their lives, right? So they're psychologically damaged people, right? And they're literally, like... It's torture for them. It's torture for them. They're just walking around. I'm like... Physiologically, that actually is torture. <laughs> like like yeah. we were speaking before about you put people in an undernourished environment yeah. and then suddenly create all this really energy-rich food. And that's part and parcel with the issue of our society today. In a hunters and gatherers and lifestyle, the energy-rich food is a cow running a past. Yeah, yeah, now yeah. it's a triple cheeseburger, yeah. which is... Anything that's high in carbs, high in fat, high in energy, your body, your brain gets these messages of this is the quickest and easiest way to replenish this fuel. That equates to your body going, I need this now and cravings. My wife's torturing me at the moment. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like starting to get freaking hungry now. And she decided just to have a day off and have, she had like last night had like, Frere Rocher and oh, and a, 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 a bottle of rosé and um, she made like a creamy pasta. I had I had, pe I had peas, potato, fish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
So there's something interesting from that um, and something that's not, I don't think, commonly explained well is the effects of alcohol. Mm. Um, I think when people are going through these bulks, cuts, all this stuff, and people are not talking to someone like yourself who knows what they're talking about. They're just kind of working out and they're going off calorific balance, right? What is the effect of alcohol on all of these processes? Is this, so you say she had a bottle of rosé. Is this something that you recommend from the athlete side, they just never touch alcohol? I mean, I know the ideal would be that, but. um... If we have athletes in competition, it's a zero. Zero consumption right, of alcohol. Um, the only t- most of the athletes that I work with, I, I work with in a long term basis. Like we've had them on board for twelve months, mm. two years, three years. Some athletes I've been working with for four years, so it's been long term. And the majority of those athletes, alcohol part and parcel of the Australian culture. Um, it's really hard to completely avoid. Um, but most of them are pretty serious athletes and the only time that they'll really drink is once or twice a year at celebration um, and it's relatively pretty responsible. Uh, every now and then we have someone who has a vendor, but um, as in part and parcel of being an adult in Australia, I guess. But during competition, absolutely not. Uh, the reason for that is alcohol. It is poison. It is literally poison. Um, we have no nutritional need to drink alcohol. So if you're consuming something that's poison, people don't like to think about this stuff because it's uncomfortable and it doesn't sit nicely with, oh, alcohol is a fun way to socialize and it makes me feel good. So people just put the blinders up and go, I don't want to think about this stuff. I'm going to talk about it because it doesn't affect me in any way, shape or form. Um, Alcohol is poison. We put poison in our body. Our body has a response from that. So one of the responses is, If you put poison in your body, your body wants to get rid of that straight away. So it puts all of its focus on trying to get rid of that. When it comes to um, the human body, we metabolize everything that we consume through the liver. So when we eat something, it goes through um, the hepatic um, blood network that goes, everything goes into the liver, the liver processes it up processes it out to different areas of the body. So you're consuming alcohol, it all gets metabolized in the liver and it gets metabolized in um, a certain inner ring of um, your hepatocytes. If you're introducing into that food at the same time, your body says number one priority, get rid of the toxin. Mm. You're consuming food and it says, not as important as getting rid of this toxin. So it doesn't necessarily shuttle off the food that you're consuming or the nutrients that you're consuming to the right areas, which sometimes that results in, we're just gonna put it in storage right here. So this is one of the reasons why when you see people who are chronic alcoholics or not even chronic alcoholics, the average, um, let's just say the average 40 year old man, what is their general body shape look like? Right, so we're talking talking about the pot belly. Pot belly, yeah. Yeah. It's a pot belly because they consume alcohol, food, um, the food, gets put into energy reserves, energy reserves, doesn't have time to shuttle it off into nice little packages across the body. I'm just going to drop it next door, which results in central adiposity, which is basically fat storage cells within the um, liver area itself and within within the abdominal area because it's less energy demanding when it's your body's trying to process getting rid of all the um, toxins within your body itself. 
Right. Okay. So this is where this is where the fact that in it significantly inhibits recovery comes in, right? Like yeah, it inhibits a multitude of different process because um, alcohol inhibits recovery in, in a variety of different mm. things. One. When you drink alcohol, people think, oh, I'm not going to eat food with it because when I've explained this to clients, they're like, this means that I just don't eat when I drink. Everyone's just trying to find a way out Try, of it. There's, <laughs> not a, there's not a loophole for this people. <laughs> right, right. You can't just get blasted and not eat. Yeah, so. you can't get blasted and not eat. Um, so alcohol stays in your system for a substantial amount of time after you're drinking. So it's not just about what you're consuming while you're actually mm. drinking. It's what you're doing in the 24 hours to 48 hours afterwards. It's still taking that long to detoxify all this stuff out of your system. So with that, you end up with a whole bunch of toxins. So I'm not sure if people know much about how alcohol's um, detoxified, but it's essentially detoxified within uh, a two-stage process. And there's an enzyme in the middle of that two-stage process, which is a rate-limiting enzyme. It is the first phase is faster than the second phase, which means you get a buildup of... um, inflammatory, horrible chemicals in the middle, while the second phase takes a bit slower to detoxify the alcohol completely out of your system. That middle phase of um, chemicals is where all your oxidative damage happens. So where all the destructive stuff happens within your body. Oxidative damage for the athlete is not a good idea. Oxidative Mm. damage for anyone in general is not a good idea. We focus Um, a vast majority of life in preventing this uh, or vast majority in the research and preventing oxidative damage because we know oxidative damage is associated with things like um, cancers, destruction of your um, DNA, telomeres, things like that. So it basically means bad shit's going to happen if you have too much oxidation and we get oxidation from, you know, a multitude of different things within the environment. So pollutants, toxins, um, the food we eat, Alcohol is a massive one. Um, so with regards to recovery, we we still have a lot of these um, middle um, intermediary chemicals floating around for the next 24 to 48 hours, which are causing oxidative damage. When you exercise itself, it causes um, a metabolic response that creates oxidative damage localized within the muscle, which is not necessarily a bad thing because it's that oxidative damage localized within the muscle cell that is what signals feedback to repair. So this right. means like little micro tears in the muscle causes a bit of damage. Sometimes there's a little bit of oxidative damage, signals repair, repair signals growth. So we need a little bit of um, damage within the muscle itself in order to grow that stimulus. We create too much of that oxidative damage. So if you create a little bit of a, um, a stimulus to create some damage and then have a whole heap of oxidative chemicals, essentially you can blow that, blow that muscle fiber up. So what I've seen in athletes, um, I'm not sure if anyone has heard of rhabdomyolysis before. No. No. Oh, this is a fun one. So right. awesome. rhabdomyolysis is um, essentially where we, it's not really studied so much in an athlete context. We see it in, um, in a hospital clinic setting where you have people with crush injuries. So if people have been in a car accident, for example, mm. um, and their muscle fibers have been smushed to pieces from a crush injury or, you know, someone's been crushed by something, the muscle fibers just go boom and get smushed. Um, that results in a whole bunch of the stuff inside of the cell being not inside of the cell anymore. So it's outside of the cell, which you then end up with a whole heap of chemicals that um, are big and sticky and get stuck in your um 
little nephrons in your kidneys and can cause kidney damage. So what that results in, a whole heap of muscle fibre in layman terms, a muscle fibre damage, and then because that muscle fibre damage has a whole heap of big chemicals floating around, your little nephrons in your kidneys get destroyed and it causes kidney damage. Symptomatically, what this looks like is you get a whole heap of fluid everywhere across your body and your kidneys stop working because you've destroyed your kidneys. This is really common in athletes because if you have people going through, um, really, especially with strength trained athletes, mm. people who do muscle injuries and they get too much muscle damage, it can create too much stress on the kidneys and create a form of kidney failure. We find this in athletes who, like I know two, um, I can say that clients have come to me who have had rhabdomyolysis from um, one from a coach who absolutely flogged their client um, who created rhabdomyolysis and another Jesus. one from a client who had a three-day-long bender and then went and try and offset that three-day-long bender with way too much training. Right, so, and, and that that second example is a common one, right, where you try to balance it out by overtraining on the other end. And people do it with generally with diet all the time, right? Yeah. Um, so, no, go on, this is fascinating what are the symptoms of rhabdo what's it again rhabdomyolysis yeah people just call it rhabdo rhabdo yeah what are the symptoms um I'm trying to think of i've i don't know I, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it as well i heard it so fluid retention so a lot of fluid retention as in they'll start getting um like swelling through extremities through limbs um Sometimes it can result in a change in um, urine output. So sometimes your pee can be a different color. Sometimes mm. it can be red. Sometimes it can be um, a sticky color. Sometimes it can change with your urine output can go from a shitload of wee to then not very much. And then your fluid um, builds up across your body. I've had it. Uh, so, so I've so I've actually heard of this. I've heard of the symptoms. I don't know if it's been referred to as this a lot in CrossFit athletes because they do unbelievable amounts at, at the highest level. They do unbelievable amounts of volume. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, the concept behind CrossFit is just do it till you're fucking dead, right? It's like, very common with CrossFit that it, yeah. that athlete that I mentioned was a CrossFit athlete right. that went on a bender and then did a stupid CrossFit a couple of worlds across a day to offset it. Wow. Because it is, it's high intensity, really smash um, sort of food, smash activity. Um, just to um, forewarn, if you think you have rhabdo, you need to go to the hospital and get your blood, blood filtered so it doesn't cause irreversible kidney damage. I <clears throat> so I think I had it during a bodybuilding during a bodybuilding prep. Yeah, and I can imagine bodybuilding because of the volume side. Yeah, so um, I did. I did the. I did my own. I did my own prep, and then uh, someone wanted to help me with that final week that they call peak week, mm. um, and did a bunch of stuff that I, I I wasn't overly comfortable comfortable with, but I did it. You know, as, as everyone does. Yeah, <laughs> bodybuilding. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he even he had me taking diuretics, and he had um, you know, crazy fluctuations in uh, in the food. So it was like like on, on the day, um, and I ended up I ended up peeing was it like red 
mm. um, on on like on the on, on the day, and then the next day, um, my my foot, my hands were like completely completely swollen. Yeah. Um. So because after he did that, there was there was there was zero monitoring on what I was doing. I had not known at that stage. I was like, this is like nearly ten years ago. Yeah. You know, on what was happening. I was just like, oh, I'll just trust this person to. That's, that stuff's still happening today. I, mm. I wish I could say I haven't heard that story before, but I have. Yeah. I didn't oh, realise how bad. I didn't realise, obviously, now how so bad. So are you, are you, do we think Goss has got compromised kidneys because of this? Is this a, like, how irreversible is irreversible? Um, kidneys are a bit of a hard one. Yeah. Sometimes you don't. Kidneys are really good at compensating. So mm. um, say, for example, if you had a kidney removed, your other kidney picks up function and will filter. It's only until production gets to a point where it's really bad that it stops filtering. So the way that we test it is your um, EGFR rate, which anything above 90 is considered good. Anything below 90 is, oh, your kidneys aren't working. And by that stage, it's too late. So there's not like a range mm. of, oh, you're getting close to it. It just says above 90 or not. Right. So there's no... So it, you're not going to know until you're old, essentially, or you have rhabdo a couple more times. Just try not to get rhabdo anymore. I haven't had it since. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Your kidneys are good at compensating. So, yeah. For some people, it um, it doesn't repair. But it with, with kidneys, once the damage is done, they don't repair. They can just compensate, if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand. Is this yeah. the same as the what you, were, what you coined as the refeed syndrome? Mm. No. Refeed, uh, refeed syndrome and rhabdo are completely two different things. Um, symptoms are sort of similar. Um, except refeeding syndrome can result in heart attacks, um, which is slightly different. Yeah, wow. That's Ouch. immediate death sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Worth it. So things like rhabdo and, um, rhabdo and refeeding syndrome are things we, we watch out when people are chronically dieting as well. Um, rhabdos, you're more vulnerable to it when you're in a diet because you're in an undernourished environment and you don't have the capacity to recover and repair as well. Mm. So it's that progressive load. So if you have someone through um, who are, you know, flogging a dead horse by the end of your training session, which is why I'm always on about when, in, when clients are getting to the point of um, needing to have deloads so that they're not... <laughs> Gus is laughing because I was on his case a few weeks ago. Um, so that that constant load of with strength training, we know it takes anywhere from 48 hours to 92 hours to completely recover, which with strength training, you're always going into another session before that recovery is completely mm. finished. So you're constantly creating test, 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 test. So it's that progressive constant tear and then you're um, coupling that with not having the nutrition there to uh, be able to repair all of that damage, making sure that um, we then don't go through a really, really heavy load and put ourselves at a really vulnerable risk of a rhabdo becomes really important. So we monitor pretty closely, like when I have people through um, aggressive diets towards the sort of back end, um, we we do check-ins pretty pretty closely because I'm, I'm monitoring for these things and making sure that we're not at risk of, of damaging um, you know, their bodies irreparably because it is, at these sort of extreme end of sports, mm. you can do some damage to the body. And the unfortunately, 
unfortunate thing is uh, as a lot of practitioners who, who put the clients through this are just unaware of the damage. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, if you don't know what you don't know. Um, yeah. I know probably not enough, but enough to know that I still know enough um, where we still need to monitor for these things. With regards to refeeding syndrome, uh, this is something that we see a lot in bodybuilding industry because people go through really long chronic diets. I'm talking anywhere from 20 weeks to 40 weeks, depending on body fat composition, um, where they can essentially put them at really high risk. Refeeding syndrome is something that is not studied in athlete context. I only see it in athlete context because I've seen it multiple times before. We learn it in a clinical context um, as a dietitian in a hospital setting. So if we have a patient come into a hospital who's been really malnourished or undernourished, the first thing that they do before we give them any food, before um, we give them any water, is we um, need to assess them for malnourishment. Um, and there's a grade in which um, they're assessed for how malnourished they are. And that determines how we actually feed them because if you take someone who's been really, really undernourished, and we talked about this with the hypercompensation effect, when you reintroduce food, you've got a hypercompensation effect in order to deal with it. So you take someone who's essentially not been eating, this isn't a hospital context, mind you, and then we give them uh, a whole heap of food. They've got all these metabolic processes that says, oh, I've been starving, eat lots of high calorie food. They've had all this increased metabolic response to deal with it. What that results in is um, a bit of, metabolic aberration. So one of the things that alters during um, that chronic dieting is the way that you allow glucose within the cell itself. So that is the number of receptors, number of carbohydrate receptors on the cell surface, as well as your insulin production. So as you go through a diet, you become more insulin sensitive. Insulin is responsible for allowing glucose outside of the cell or from mm. the blood into the cell itself mm. where metabolic action happens. So this is why we know with um, obese people when, who have um, carbohydrate issues, glucose sensitivity issues, putting them through a diet metabolically, they get a good response because chronic dieting results in increased um, carbohydrate response through increasing sensitivity to insulin. If you then have a really high sensitivity to insulin and then introduce too much carbohydrates too quickly, what happens is um, you get a really, really um, high spike in carbohydrates within the blood cells, uh, um, blood itself, so your blood sugar levels elevate. Your blood sugar levels uh, have a feedback loop. They're not supposed to be too high in the bloodstream or it results in some bad stuff happening. So when they reach a, a certain level, the gateways or um, to your cells themselves open up to allow that carbohydrate into the cells themselves. So that can result in storage of the carbohydrate within the liver, the glycogen story, which is your major storage, or storage of your um, carbohydrate as glycogen in the muscle or storage of carbohydrate within the fat cells themselves. So we're trying to get rid of it out of the bloodstream and we're trying to shuffle it into storage. Because we have an increased capacity and we have a huge big carbohydrate load, if someone's eaten you know, a bucket load of carbohydrates really quickly, um, what that results in is all the gateways opening up. So if you think about it like a dam, we've just mm. broken the wall of a dam down and water's gonna come gushing out. With carbohydrates, we've opened up the cell surface to allow insulin in, but it's created a bit of distribution issue that often results in some of your electrolytes being um, a bit unbalanced within the, the 
intracellular matrix and extracellular matrix. So within the bloodstream or and then within the cell surface itself, they alter. So you're supposed to maintain a ratio of your electrolytes at a certain ratio inside and outside the cell. If that alters, it can cause a localized um, a sort of electrical pulse, if you will, which then can initiate things like cramps. So mm. um, people who have gotten, for example, um, athletes, they'll, you'll find towards the back end of competition, they'll start getting more vulnerable for st stuff like cramps. Mm. And that's because there's a electrolyte distribution issue. So oftentimes we look at things like magnesium um, as magnesium is one of the salts that we lose through sweat. And it's also something that decreases, obviously with undernourishment, your, your electrolytes will end up decreasing. Um, that electrolyte distribution issue can cause that sort of localized cramping. Localized cramping in the heart equals what? A heart attack? Cardiac arrest, yeah. Cardiac arrest, which is not really great. Um, it also results in things like what, when you when you move those electrolytes in and out of the cell within sort of the wrong distribution, water always follows in order to balance mm. the concentration. So you end up with too much water in certain areas and not enough water in certain areas. Um, that results in essentially swelling. So refeeding syndrome, we see people start getting cramps, people start getting um, similarly, like we talked about rhabdo, they start getting fluid distribution issues mm. across their body. And they'll start getting, um, it might not be full-blown cramps, but it might be little flutters. So people will start getting like little flutters in their heart. Yeah. Um, they'll start getting the symptoms of um, a high mm. blood sugar level event when they start eating it. So this is um, basically immediately They'll get a high blood sugar level event and then that cascade will happen where you'll get all the cell surface open, carbohydrates or the blood sugar levels um, drop to shuffle the sugars into storage and then you'll get a low blood sugar level event. So then you'll get um, the symptoms of a low blood sugar level event, which is if anyone's have had one before, it's dizzy, mm -hmm. um, hearing sort of starts to go, really sweaty hands. Mm -hmm. That's the first click and that's sort of instantaneous. So if you take someone from undernourished to then going, here's, here's a big binge essentially, um, about 10 minutes into that binge, they're like, oh, I'm not feeling too great. And then within the next couple of hours, you'll start to see the fluid put on. When you're looking at athletes, this is really common I see in the bodybuilding industry. So people, um, do their bodybuilding comp the next day after comp, they have, if they've gone on an outrageous binge that night, they'll be all fluidy and horrible. Or they have been told to have refeeds before leading into the comp and it's been too much for their bodies to handle and they've been all fluidy and horrible leading into comp. Um, this is in aesthetic sport, like that that just ends it for the day for you. Yeah, of course. Um, either or, it generally means you you're not where you need to be for competition. If we're looking in a non-aesthetic sport, so like powerlifting or even I work with a lot of fighters, MMA fighters and whatnot, um, fluid distribution issues and neurological issues are going to cause stress on the body, which causes performance benefits. So how comfortable do you think that you're, you would feel getting on, um, on that platform if your body's holding more fluid than it needs to? if your nervous system is a bit shocked. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to perform no, to not. where you need you're to be. Yeah. So it, it goes beyond just those aesthetic sports um, and not to mention, you know, the, the health consequence of you're potentially at risk of dropping dead 
with refeeding syndrome if it's too aggressive. Um, so as much as it's nice to go to clients, oh, yeah, go and have a free meal off, when you combine with you've just been in a chronic diet and you have all these physiological influences going replenish, 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 some people don't know when to stop. Like I, I even know with myself, um, I have, I'm not very impulsive remotely. My husband and I joke about um, how we need to plan to be impulsive, which is an oxymoron. <laughs> of course. Um, we both have really good self-control, but I know at the back end of a comp, there's that, it's almost like this mind-body um, detachment where you're so undernourished that you go, I'll just have one, and then you just have three, four, five, six, seven, and then at some point you have to get this other hand and smack it and say, stop, 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 stop. It's really hard to put the wheels on um, to mm. to stop eating because it's it's almost like your physiolog- physiology is um, taken the driver's seat and said we need to replenish. So it's, it's not, even for the most strong-willed individuals, it's a lot harder to say no to, and to stop that excessive... Um, um, control. So, have you had cases where it's maybe like an unconscious, not uh, not completely, but I've just I've just seen some. I've I've heard of just some stories, especially with one of my mates. He didn't realize he was he was he was eating. It was like chocolate marshmallows. It's like oh, I'll just have one. And then he, then he re- and then he realized he didn't. He see that he looked back. It's like, like what the fuck? Oh mate, I'll, I'll, like, I'll, I'll one up you there, right? I've, I've got this story that I tell everyone, right? That there's. When I t- t- tell people I've got no self-control when it comes to sugar and stuff, right, I've had this discussion with you. I've got this story. I'm not joking. So I, I'd said this on another podcast as well. I was once staying at, a f- when we first came to Brisbane, me and my wife, we stayed with um, her cousin's girlfriend at the time in their apartment, okay? And we, we bought four, like, chocolate puddings. We ate two after dinner, okay? And I'm this person where, if there's one left, it's like talking to me, right? Like I can hear it whispering <laughs> to me across the room. So threw it in the fridge, right? Because we're around people, normal people. We don't want to like shock them with how much of a pig I am. I go to sleep, right? I wake up the next day. It's fucking chocolate all over the sheets. It looked like I'd murdered a chocolate person. Chocolate all over my face, right? And I was like, holy shit, what the hell happened? I'd slept, walked. I'd gone in my sleep. To the fridge, right? And we had a look at the pudding. I just like bear clawed it like that, clawed it out and just done that. And then fucking, like, like I, yeah, I know. You want to talk about subconscious? Like- that, that's, um, that's a great story. That's actually a, a similar story to what I was going to say is there is actually a condition called night eating syndrome, yeah. um, which is unconscious or subconscious eating um, throughout the night. Um. This is something that um, I've worked with a client before that this client had it as a result of chronic dieting in combination with um, some other psychosocial um, stresses and stuff that were happening. When you're in a really undernourished environment and the psychosocial stuff contributed a vast majority, so there was... um, I don't think like it was all interrelated, but mm. the chronic dieting triggered right. an underlying thing that was happening. Um, but it was a similar thing where this client would wake up in the morning um, in this one context, I remember um, this client saying that they woke up with a chicken carcass on, on their chest. 
Oh, shit. <laughs> um, and they I said to me, yeah. I'd completely stripped the chicken carcass, all the cartilage, all mm. the um, skin. She, and that, It's delicate work. Yeah. And the client <laughs> said, like, I, I don't even normally like it. Um, and I, wow. I, it, it's, it's actually a really, really fascinating um, disorder that can happen with um, – it's a form of eating disorder um, that we know is worsened by chronic dieting because there is that physiological um, requirement for additional food. Um, there is another – a link within it there's a pathophysiological issue with your sleep cycle so normally what's supposed to happen during your sleep is when you dream about stuff you've got a mechanism in your brain that switches off movement so you're not you, you don't act out your dreams mm. um, in some contexts that mechanism doesn't switch off so if you look at for example um, and I've been researching into this a little bit lately because I've got an eight and a half month old baby um, babies in the first couple of months of life, that mechanism is not set in place. Yep. So they grunt and they um, and they make a lot of noise and they wiggle around and they move a lot in their sleep because they do act out their sleep. Um, and I've got a very neurologically active child and I almost need a straight jacket home most nights to try and get her to sleep because she moves around a lot in her sleep. And I've been trying to research when does this actually switch off? Um, which has sort of lead, led me into a rabbit hole of what happens with adults. And mm. um, it, it's a really fascinating um, sort of context that happens with undernourishing and, yeah, eating eating throughout the night and on a subconscious level. I think I would have been eating through the night then if I didn't have that mechanism stopping me because I had like I used to have like dreams about eating mm. when I was dieting. And, and then you'll, you'll be eating like a sandwich or something and you go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm on a diet. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I, like, um, I'd be a really interesting test case for you. You've probably seen it all before, but I, I, I'm a, I'm a binger. Like, like it, my wife tells legends of the amount of food I can binge on. Like it's insane. And I've got all the shit that comes with that, all the psychological issues and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that whole, I, I consciously do it now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, it gets to, it gets to the point now, and I think there are a lot of people like this, where you, if you're just gonna fall off the wagon, I'm just gonna fall off hard, right? And I'm just gonna go, fucking go all the way. That's where I think the, this concept of a cheat day has come in. I think everybody loves the idea of a cheat day. Be- oh, I mean, because you could do the bottle of tequila, fucking all kind of crazy stuff. It's a and, fun time. That's why yeah. everyone loves it. And um, I, I personally, I hate the term. <laughs> Cheat day because yeah. what we find with with most clients that just about every client that comes to me with you know one or two exceptions, um, everyone has issues with food behaviours. Yeah, there's yeah. and it's part and parcel of the society and and and, and the mm. foodscape that we have. Of course, um, and a lot of it is also attributed to the vast, I guess, over influence of it's trendy to be healthy. So people, there's so much information and there's so much over-information on what to eat, when to eat, what you should eat, that it all becomes way too inc- um, confusing. Mm. So we have people coming to us going clean eating. I hate the term clean eating because people who clean eat, and I say that with in- inverted commas, are the ones that clean eat throughout the week and then binge on the weekend. Um, and you're right, this wagon, this wagon that everyone has hitched themselves to, the wagon's wrong. The wagon's mm. completely off the rails. Um 
in the first place, which is what attributes to them then falling off the wagon. So people haven't worked out what balance is. There's either this all or nothing. I've got to be really good and really good equals me eating chicken, broccoli and rice five, six days a week and then going on a 10,000 calorie binge on the weekend because I'm under eat throughout the week. I'm so starved of food. I'm so bored with the food I've eaten that now I have to feel like I've got to get as much as I can in in this one little window because I know next week I'm going to have to eat good again. And eating good means eating chicken, broccoli and rice. And Mm. this is really boring and it's not satisfying my (coughs) physiological needs or um, psychological needs. So one of the things that we teach people is is how to balance that out, is how to actually include those binge feeds throughout the week so that you don't get to the weekend and feel like, oh, I've got to squirrel all this up and smash it all in one go, which then puts people at risk of, one, things like refeeding syndrome, um, but two, the biggest thing is the psychological damage associated with it. No one feels good. Like you feel good during the time of having a binge. Yeah, drinking a bottle of tequila, that's fun. Um, during it, no one has ever drunk a bottle of tequila and felt great after it all the next day. You know, it's it's the consequence of what happens the next day. And often people go, it's worth it at the time. Like I'm, I, it's worth it to feel this good. I don't want to think about how shit I'm going to feel for the rest of the week. I think I think athletes have. Uh, I don't know about you, Gus, but I think I grew up playing a lot of professional, like professional sports, but not in the strength arena. But this is like soccer in the UK. But the general consensus among athlete, athletes there is those binges are validated because they've earned it. So that totally, the, yeah. So if I've done, if say if I've say your training splits, you know, Monday to Friday, right? They've they almost feel like it's a valid thing to do on a Saturday because I've earned it. it. And it's but it's the worst time post post training or post competition is the worst time to do it right to ha- to hammer it. And I the amount of guys and this this is common in soccer and team sports generally, right? You play a game at the weekend and after the game you go out and get wasted with the lads, right? To to um cool down. Yeah. They call it or calm down. It's like but then it takes you five days to recover because you, you know, that and that's a big issue with our society. A lot, yeah. a lot of these um, binge, restrict binge, restrict binge behaviors yeah. are culturalized and they're legitimized by the nature of the culture. Yeah, yeah. So, like I see it, and this is one of the reasons why I, I went into dietetics because what I saw in the bodybuilding industry was horrific. It's essentially an industry that is um, uh, legitimized eating disorders. Um, whether that's anorexia or whether that's um, binge eating disorders. Um, and, and there is argument as well that certain personality types that are genetically pre, uh, predisposed to binge eating disorders and anorexia generally gravitate towards certain types of sport yeah, of um, because of the nature of perfectionism in there and because of the nature of competitiveness. So you'll have sort of that underlying influence of um, genetics as well as the culture legitimizing it. So I've had, you know, clients in the bodybuilding industry contact me and say, um, this is what I want to do. How often do we get cheat meals? And as soon as a client says to that in an initial um, conversation before I'll even book them in for initial consult, um, I know that their interest in this is not for the right one. They're, they're doing the sport to legitimise a bad behaviour because, you know, it's culturally okay to, you know, eat a 1,000 calories throughout the week and then have a 4,000 calorie um, refeed, in inverted commas, where 
it's not a refeed. A refeed is structured, titrated carbohydrates, protein, fat. A cheat meal is essentially a um, a binge mm. on whatever you want. Um, but I mean, that feels nice, and it's really easy to mm. not think about these things because they're uncomfortable things to think about. And it's easy for people to go, oh, I'm, I'm doing it because this is this is what my sport requires. Or, you know, mm. in your context, this is culturally okay because this is what you do with the lads. You, mm. you go and play really hard soccer throughout the week and then on the weekend you, you bond and you, you connect together by going out and getting smashed. That's legitimizing that mm. bad behavior and creating that bad culture. It's, yeah, it's um, a really hard one to, to navigate in and to get through. Be complicated dealing with those clients, wouldn't it? Or well, you got to depends. I guess you got to start with a therapy session, don't you? Really, it's got to be like you got to reframe, or do you just discount them as? What do you do with those people? Do you, are there anyone where you go red flag? Can't work with you. Or, um, I, I I work with clients who have diagnosed eating disorders, and I work with clients who don't have diagnosed eating disorders. Probably about ninety percent of my clients, mm. if they went to a psychologist, would have a diagnosed eating disorder. Of course, yeah. Um, but a lot of, I don't know if you've looked at the schedule of fees for a psychologist, they're pretty expensive um, and people also don't like to admit that. So um, I've done specialised training and sort of navigate that. But I stopped calling my service a nutrition consultation um, and the way that I structure my service is I call it nutrition coaching. So honestly, when it, when it comes to food, food is about 5%, psychology is about 95%. So I can write the best diet plan in the world mm. and it doesn't mean the, it's not worth the paper it's written on if people won't follow it. And what stops people from following a food plan is usually what's going on in their head. Um, and that's for the vast majority. I have a very small select um, clientele, which are usually my top performing athletes who would eat shit on a stick if I said it would win them a trophy. Mm. Um, and to be honest, that that clientele is really fun to deal with because that's where I get to use all my technical um, programming dietetic skills, uh, which I, I don't necessarily even get to use because it's, it's pointless using all this technical programming skills if they can't even follow a basic diet for, for a lot of clients or we need to um, sort of get them to a place where I can then get them to there where I can use my technical programming skills. Um, that's the same. This is like, I was going to say, this is like, this is literally you talking here but from a different field it's the same thing right it's just you spend so much time laying down the foundations and at least those foundations the psychological foundations physiological the way they move is there there's no there's there's no advanced technical work which is only put on you know well i i have a i do have a higher higher amount of athletes compared to most most coaches would work with so i do have a significant amount so probably at least half of them now i'd probably do quite quite advanced technical work but yeah, in, 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 in the past, it would be you know, quite, quite rare, if maybe you get one or two of your, or three of your clients where you'd actually get to uh, uh, deploy advanced programming skills mm -hmm. because the first step is that they will need to follow the, you need to follow up a program yeah. first, you know, and execute it well and move well and have movement quality. Uh, yeah, elite's elite, right? Mm. Some people just, and it's hard with a coach as well because people's misconception, um, like I've, I've changed our services. Mm. We do a minimum six-week block with clients instead of doing, I want, I refuse to do one-off consultations because I'll have clients come to me and go, oh, can I have a meal plan? 
I can write everyone a meal plan. You're not going to follow it. Sounds like, <laughs> like, sounds we, like a, can I have a program? We need, yeah. you know, a minimum, a minimum six weeks. And when mm. I say six weeks, it's because if people aren't willing to invest six weeks, they're not willing to invest anything more. And that, that stops people straight away um, of, of how committed they are. Generally, six weeks is never enough to get someone to where they need to be. We generally need to work with someone with for like six months to get mm. them to where they need to be. And... A one-off meal plan doesn't cut it. No one, unless you're talking about uh, that sort of 1% of clientele who eat shit on a stick and to get a trophy, they're the only ones that I can get a meal plan to and know that they're going to follow it through. But even those clients, there are going to be things within that time frame that are going to affect their, their capacity to be able to eat that plan. And, and how we um, modify that plan over time is also depending on their psychology. So even with looking at... Um, yourself looking at things like the, the stress and load on your body is relevant to when we're doing refeeds and when we're doing um, um, breaks, diet breaks. Okay, now we're back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Just about. Um, okay, I forget what we were, what we were talking about before. Um, so but we, we had. So we just. You were halfway through. Literally, it cut out halfway through you talking about. Gus's application of you said it was just it was like with you right with the fuck <laughs> start a new question <laughs> we're not going to piece it together let's go back to the topic <laughs> okay um, <laughs> we came off the topic about 45 minutes ago I think so I'm still fascinated by this super compensation effect with dieting yeah um, I've always said no one no one about it in terms of strengthening strength and conditioning um do you think the same that affected that adaptation to you know of training through a deficit is pushing that same effect of fatigue um and causing adaptations from from that strength and conditioning perspective as well as the hyper glycogen storage if you if you know what i mean because we'll do it through train, we'll, we'll do it through training, through training volume and intensity. Um, and does that is that adding the deficit adding to that effect as well that we have a more crazy environment or more of a demanding environment? Yes, um, that comes back into those energy systems and that fuel availability when mm -hmm. you're. Um, there, there's a saying um, in, in sports nutrition, train low, compete high. Mm -hmm. um, train in a low environment, low dietetic environment. That mm. in, in that context, I was specific, specifically talking about um, barometric pressure. Um, can training in an oxygen-deprived environment, competing in an oxygen-high environment, affects those metabolic enzymes. So when we look oh, at... Oh, like altitude training kind of thing. Yeah, yeah altitude yeah. training. So altitude training is... Have either of you tried altitude training before? I, so I've been at four and a half thousand meters, I think. And I went for, I decided to go for a run. It was the most terrifying experience of my life, right? Yep. I literally ran for 15 minutes. Gosh, I'm not joking. You know, when you're just like <gasps> panting, <gasps> you're out of breath. Can't get Aaron. And it was for 45 minutes. 45 minutes I was sat still and I could not catch my breath it was I thought I was going to die so it was fucking terrifying honestly it was terrifying yep but yeah so it sounds like it feels like it's been winded 
It, it, it feels like there's no like, air available, like going, it feels claustrophobic. It's like if you can only take a third of a breath at a time, mm. but you're also heavily fatigued and you've been doing sprints and stuff, it's like... You're heavily like fatigued that. because oh. there's not that intermediary um, short-term recovery available because the oxygen's not there. Um, so th that effect happens where metabolic availability of fuels is less. So if we're looking just in a general strength mm. training context, because you're, you're undernourished, you have less fuels available. So your body has to adapt to get better at dealing with the fuels you do have available. That's one context in which um, your strength training improves. The second context is psychological. So mm. what was your brain doing when you were doing that 15-minute run? When I was in the 15-minute run? Yep. How did, how did you feel and what were you thinking through that context? Were you freaking out? Yeah, it was panic. Yeah, panic. It, it's genuine panic towards the end. I, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that whole psychological thing, if you're um, training in a really, really psychologically tough environment, i.e. undernourished, things feel hard. Mm. You're having to use a lot more of your psychological approaches to get through that session. So, and this is one of the things um, we talked about in, in, in more emphasis being placed on that psychology of amping yourself up and talking yourself into it and, and, and making sure you can get through that session. Mm. So that I have noticed changes. Yeah. So that when you are um, back into that and, and you think about it, you're constantly reinforcing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The harder it becomes, you have to put more emphasis on reinforcing um, all those psychological techniques you need to get through that session when it comes to being in an environment where your physiology has got plenty of fuels available and there's not that feeling of perceived exertion mm -hmm. and you've already got all those psychological systems in place, you're going to perform better if you've then got, you know, you're physically feeling better and then you've got all these psychological systems put in place that you've um, employed constantly throughout the past couple of months mm -hmm. to get through that session. It's sort of like... Um, if you think about in context of that running session, if you try and uh, there's a couple of gyms across Brisbane that have um, yeah. altitude training in them. So you can go like a hyperbaric chamber kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's a whole gyms here that are altitude gyms. So you can go and do a cycle class in an altitude gym um, to, you know, offset to create an effect. Mm. If you went and did a run on a treadmill, in a hyperbaric chamber for 15 minutes and then went outside and did a run for 15 minutes, how easy would that run outside feel by right. comparison? Right. So so what's interesting is I, I was at altitude. So I was traveling. So I was in the Andes, right? So I was at altitude for over a month. Um, I was above 3,000 meters for about six weeks, right? We came down to sea level and I, I went for a run and I've never been a long distance runner ever. Never been my thing. I went for a run and I just, I, I just could have kept going and going and going and going. It was insane. But also the air felt like, it felt like I was breathing in soup. Yep. It was so thick, you know, because of the difference. So that's it was insane. That's a two context. That's a physiological difference mm. and also a perceived exertion difference. So uh, in strength training, we look at rate of perceived exertion as a way to modify the intensity of our training sessions and has a way to taper up and taper down. Rate of perceived exertion is basically your psychology telling you how hard it is. Right. Um, 
if we used to training at a really high RPE and then suddenly we're in an environment where the RPE is quite low and then we physiologically have the metabolic adaptations to deal with it, we can perform really, really well. Mm. Um, with regards to like that effect you saw with, with the running, six weeks at altitude is enough to create that metabolic adaptation. Mm. So you had that metabolic adaptation as well as a physiological um, change of the air mm. pressure and the, the part of your mind not going into panic and going, oh, I can do this. This is really easy because I've just been doing it really, really rough for the last couple of weeks. So when things feel easier combined with you physiologically have change within your body, performance increases astronomically. Mm. It's like the military mantras, like train hard, fight easy. Yeah. Um, with applica- I guess, I guess application then, if we have a strength athlete, so when we got, you'll have nutrition to help with, try to attain, I guess, an adaptive stimulus, neurological adaptive stimulus. Now, if we're undernourished and unable to get this, or will it affect our ability to hit uh, adaptive load that we're trying to hit? So if we're, if we figure that our adaptive load is a lot higher than than down here, but the deficit's forcing us to train a bit lower, or are we trying to psychologically push ourselves, or are we just not going to receive the adaptive or are we going to be suppressed to the point that training at a do you kind of know what I mean I know what you mean because um, there's so many so so are you sorry are you, are you suggesting that at a point that the the dietary maybe impacting maybe impacting your ability to get enough volume and load to cause the adaptation at a training level does that mean to get the they right they're not adaptive adaptive stimulus right yeah okay that's a really hard one to answer, mm. being that that would apply if you're under the presumption that there's a linear equation to adaptive stimulus equals certain strength numbers. I, th- I thought there was a linear equation for everything when it comes to training. There's not a linear equation <laughs> when it comes to metabolic adaptation, though. Yeah. So, no, I'm taking the piss. That's what everybody thinks, but there just isn't. Yeah. Um. I mean, if you're, there potentially is a linear equation if you're in a metabolic maintenance constantly and if we're not yeah. uh, modifying metabolism. The whole point of nutritional strategies to improve performance is to modify metabolism. Mm. So just because, uh, like when we're looking at powerlifting, for example, if, you're, if you've tracked out what numbers you need to hit for competition to win, what numbers you need to hit um, leading into a certain phase into your training block, if you're not hitting them, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to hit competition numbers mm. if we're looking at nutritional strategies. So it can often be um, difficult because most coaches go on a linear trend of you need to hit these numbers by this stage mm. or you're not going to hit these numbers at competition, which as soon as you tell someone they're not going to hit numbers by competition, they're not going to hit numbers by co- yeah. competition because you've put a psychological dam in place. Mm. Um, with nutrition, you're training in that undernourished environment, that's not going to happen. So you're not going to hit those same numbers, but you're going to have a metabolic different response when you're training in an or when you're competing in a nourished environment. So we look at um, your run at altitude. This is a really simple one to explain. 
if I said to you, you need to run 2.4 kilometres in um, under eight minutes at altitude, how much would that have freaked you out? A lot. A lot. Like, yeah. A and lot. six weeks of that, busting your ass, trying to hit 2.4 kilometres in under eight minutes, and I, you probably still wouldn't have even be able to get that because the whole time your brain's going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is so hard, panic, panic, panic. Six weeks later, you get down to altitude, you've got a whole heap of metabolic enzymes that have upregulated for oxygenation. So your aerobic energy systems are elevated. Aerobic energy systems um, increase capacity for endurance, that equates to. Increase recovery for oxidative systems, that equates to. If we then put you through the same test, 2.4 Ks run in under eight minutes, mm. you probably would have smashed it out in seven. Yeah. And you would have got to the seven minutes and gone, that was easy. It doesn't necessarily mean when you're training at a low environment that you're not going to get the effect at a high environment. In fact, it usually means that's not the um, purpose at all. That That's definitely not going to happen. Um, ergo, it's not a linear response to training in a low environment doesn't mean you're, you're not going to achieve the results that you're trying to um, achieve. The whole point is we want to actually make it harder for you. The harder it is during that session, during those sessions in that undernourished mm -hmm. environment, it can often mean as soon as we put you in a well-nourished environment, you're going to perform exponentially better. Would you periodize, periodize this in a way for let someone, like, because it kind of, at the same time, we're like testing our numbers to know what, I guess, what outcomes we're going to have during competition. And, um, the, and obviously the more advanced you get, you don't need to hit, exactly maximal performance mm. all the time or at all until competition um would we would you would you aim to s cycle a, a, a diet in a way during testing phases like during a during a peak phase where i'm trying to let's say there's like might be a three week three week build up to something all the volumes back here which we could have done maybe in a deficit but <coughs> if we got a, like a three week phase of a build up would be an approach would we look at having a a, a, a or keep them under oh, that question's how long is a piece of string and it's um highly dependent on the individual and the circumstance so it depends on where we are in regards to time frame out from that competition so it's pointless titrating that up to get the hypercompensation effect if we then are not going to deplete someone enough leading into competition to mimic that hypercompensation. So that second hypercompensation might not be as big. So it's really great if we want to test the theory out and mm. hit really great numbers and go, this is what I'm going to hit in competition. But then getting to competition, we haven't actually hit those numbers. I guess it's probably a similar mm. approach that I'm taking. I take anyway, because I'll maintain, I'll start to increase intensity to that testing point, but I'll maintain volume and under, under fatigue. And I get biofeedback about where, I guess, how far into fatigue, mm. uh, how fatigued they are, because I'll start to feel pretty shitty and the motivation will start to drop off. And this mm -hmm. is where I, I keep them going, depending on that phase. So, you know, I manage it earlier in the prep when it gets close, when it gets to that end, I'm, I'm generally trying to maintain it and I want them to test under fatigue. Yep. Um, because then we'll get that compensation effect at the end because yep. then I'll know by the time the competition comes around, those numbers that seemed a bit harder, even though you might have been – because they might have put, say, 2.5% in during during the test during that testing under a huge amount of fatigue. Then yep. I know that's an easy, easy second attempt. Yeah. You know, so then we've got a huge 
so conversation effect yeah yeah we we do and i, I think with with the athlete making them aware of when you're testing those numbers, this is this is an increased fatigue load and this is an increased stress load with the training volume that you're doing as well as with the with the undernourished environment. You're not going to hit the same numbers that you will at competition. So this we're trying to hit see what numbers. If you hit the num- numbers you're aiming for at competition, it means you're going to su- supersede those at competition. Um, as long as they're aware, because there, there can be a psychological dampening effect of if they go into that session going shit, I didn't hit. hit hit the numbers that I wanted for competition, this means I'm not going to hit the numbers and then they're in their heads too much leading into that competition. So as long as the athlete knows that we're testing you under those hard environments for that purpose, Mm. we want to test you in a hard environment so that when you get to competition, it's not a hard environment, you're going to perform better. So yeah, it seems to be, the concept seems to be the same, just under different discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Do do, do you, do you, Put any effort into prepping them psychologically for going through that in that context like do you, do you yeah do the, you say the athlete look, look you're gonna don't worry about what you lift just kind of trust me is that i mean i guess that's probably your the whole way through what you're saying but um, uh, uh, <laughs> just trust uh, me. Saying, the thing is different for it yeah every single person athlete, like yeah. i'll get feedback with from them constantly and just like how you're doing it's just i'm managing their expectations and what they mm. You know, and try and get them to understand what they're feeling, yeah. And whether or not I make a decision to, because I, I don't give them the expect I don't give me expectations that they're going to hit, you know, massive testing numbers. And I it, it's it's clear and people understand my coaching is that we generally don't I, I we don't have the expectations that we're going to be testing maximal numbers because the whole point is to just know enough to get us to competition, then to hit. Hit P, hit massive PBs in the gym because that's just for your ego. But what, yeah. what about Instagram? <laughs> um. So, what would be then? What your thoughts on the approach of just eating, comparing just eating to recover and perform optimally or maximally, comparing to you utilizing a compensation a super compensation effect um you won't hit as good as numbers how how long is how long are these phases by the way to get to get this effect just just top level and i know it'll depend person to person but roughly how long is your you know cut and then refeed how long what's the cycle length Uh, the research isn't clear but anecdotally from experience Somewhere between, depending on individual, between about eight to ten weeks. Right. Okay. So you said the effect is best in that first week or two, right? Yep. And but the effect can hold for about three months. Three months. Nice. What depending would... on the length of the diet. So, like, if we have, if we take someone through a thirty-week diet, they'll get three to four months, maybe five months out of supercompensation. But it's not a linear increase. It's the first couple of the first six weeks are huge big increases um and then it sort of starts to slow down and it plateaus out so it, even with the athletes that i work with um year to year so ones that i've been working with for three four years we'll take them through um once twice a year what i call a mini cut to mm-hmm. which will be a six to ten week diet um, eight to ten week diet to resensitize them mm-hmm. the reason why this topic interests me because it's 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 very Different to the approach I've always taken with all, all my clients. It's always been eat to recover, eat to perform. Um, and we try to get them 
eating to a, a you know a lot, get them in a lot. Um, with uh, now and, and with that, I mean, I have produced awesome, you know, awesome results. Um, generally, though, um, without managing body weight at all times, mm. you know, they will put on they will put on weight, but still get pretty strong. So I've had I've got probably at least at least five or six girls that have squatted over two hundred. Um, and manage and maintain uh, okay weight. Most of them sitting around the seventy-five kilo mm. kilo class. That they're normally not small small girls. Um, so it, it is challenging, you know. I guess my I guess approach that I've always always have taken, which is why this is interesting to me as a as a perhaps another approach or a tool that we can implement. Um, As a rule of thumb, what I found is about a 10% body weight change is enough to create a massive supercompensation effect. Mm -hmm. So which roughly equates to somewhere between that um, eight to 10 week mark. Would you would you cycle uh, for a strength athlete? Could be would you would you think about cycling or would you cycling this this effect where you know let's say we're clearly in range of our weight targets and stuff uh, like body weight targets. Um, that will you go through a phase where we won't use a compensation effect, or you find that that will always supersede. It always supersedes. I, I will always cycle it throughout the twelve months. Right. So you're you're constantly cycling through this. There's there's no, yep. and the, there's no ill effects that you know of from that process. This cut refeed, cut refeed kind of cycle. No, I, okay. I found it helps all of the clients that I've had. Um, end up with better metabolic profiles out of it, right? Okay. Because you're constantly creating, um, and the the way that I worked, it's we make sure everyone's well nourished. Um, so even during those undernourished environments, mm. they're still getting, you know, the micronutrients um, that they need, and they're n- never aggressive enough diets where I'm putting someone in a, you know, like 500 calorie diet. So this is going to add another. This is just another great another. Another another tool to add to because you know we'll get we'll get massive plateaus at times with athletes mm-hmm. as well and you're always looking at strategies to help them get stronger and the way I always always think about things is I always look at things from a uh, anatomy biomechanical biomechanical eyes where I'm squeezing efficiency out of mm. every possible joint I can um, to gain to gain progress and you know just changing the level of ankle mobility can carry over to an extra. 20 kilos because they can position themselves better in the hole at the bottom of the squat, you know. Um, well, we're doing that metabolically with food. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, just, it's just really fascinating that, you know, if we could be, bring all these worlds together, <laughs> you know, what kind of beast we can create. Well, I mean, you're talking about... You're talking about the better-funded professional sports there, aren't you? I guess that's what they would have... I'm thinking like NFL stuff like that. You've got yeah, this is an team indi- of nutritionists, team of this is an indi- this is an individual sport. <laughs> oh shit! What did I say? <laughs> team sports are actually the worst yeah, um, I- because of the culture of the food environment. Yeah, like yeah, you, I was about you, to say. you're talking with. Um, I find people who do individual sports because they have to have more accountability uh, for their own results in competition. They are a hell of a lot more focused on it. So. The clients that I work with, 
on a prof- I would call them still amateur professional professional sports is something that you I would consider something you get paid for mm. enough where you don't have to do another job. Yeah. So most of the clients that I have wouldn't fall into that category. Um, the, generally the clients that fall into that category are team sports who have, like you said, a team of professionals. I have worked with those clients before and they have some of the worst diets yeah. I've ever seen. Um, and there's culturally that's accepted. Um, their focus in those team sports is primarily things like how much protein, how much creatine, what other supplements can I take? Which supplements is one thing that like I barely oh, even I barely even look at because we can do so much with just dieting and refeeding someone and making sure they're they're well nourished and um, cyclical throughout the phase that you know supplements unless you've got all of that un- under control they're only going to contribute one to two percent if that. So the sup- supplements is one of my the bees in my bonnet because I think it's and it's mainly from a marketing standpoint, right? It's disproportionately marketed as a success factor. Yeah. Just just generally in the fitness industry, I think like buying buying supplements is a great way to make money off people, right? Like Absolutely. pushing supplements. It's a multi billion dollar industry. Of course, but your recommendation is. Unless you're at the top of the tree and you've got everything, all your other shit together, there's just no point, pretty much. No. So the only time that I've really dabbled with supplements to help out athletic performance is uh, things like, for example, um, when we have, uh, say, for example, like MMA fighting, um, Mm. there are some supplements that have some sort of okay research Mm. against for helping with... um, strength power velocity which when you're looking at fighting sports mm. if you see a one percent increase in that that can be the difference between a knockout and not a knockout yeah. so there are certain sports where we can supplement um you know just before going into their ring stage platform whatever that we can see an improvement for and they can have nutrition 80 80 percent good 20 percent bad mm throughout the rest of their season and it doesn't affect their performance that much but there are still supplements in that context but the average i'd say 99 percent of individuals even strength-based athletes it really doesn't contribute that much that you're going to see a performance increase interesting with you know supplements you buy off the shelf of you know major brands bca double a's bca is one i hate supplements I think we've all gone up, gone through that cycle before. Of- yeah, well, there's just that that idea that there's there's a magic pill to take. I think that's it, the Australian. That's a, a our culture, though. There's right. a quick and easy. If there's an easier way to do it, let's do it. If there's a convenient way to do it, let's do it. Yeah, so people don't want to work hard. So you're the uh, what are we? We've got your nutrition base. We've had a sports physiologist. We've had multiple tra- and and the the message is the same. The message is the same across, like, nobody seems to want to do the time to make the change and everybody just wants it immediately. And Immediate nobody, satisfaction. Nobody, yeah, and psychology is completely underutilized in most people. Like, they, just, they, don't, they don't understand that the psychology is a massive thing. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I say it's like you can, it's, everyone has the potential to make it to the top. I said that only very, because I've had people who have a, a high level of talent just heads not there Mm. and then people who are just unfortunate 
but will still make it and do really well. The only common variable is just their their psychology. Their drive, yeah. Yeah, that is it. They'll always outdo someone who is naturally talented. Mm. I mean, if you get best of both worlds, yeah. What is it? Um, hard work always beats talent until talent works hard. Yeah. 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 Then you're screwed. Because <laughs> when you see those 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 guys, those freaks, yeah, yeah, they're the freaks. Yeah. All right. Well, that answers all my questions for today's. I, so I got one. I got one more. Right, because I, I I hit Gus with this with with the hydration one. Right. <coughs> when you look out there, either people seem to fall. It seems to be one of these like um, political things in that you're one thing or the other. Right. I either hear just drink when you're thirsty, not that big a deal. To to other people, literally prescribing four liters a day and you can see people carrying around these fucking drums right and just like constantly chugging this stuff where where do you fall on the the importance of hydration to to the elite level performance um elite level performance oh it's important for everyone yeah. elite level performance very very much so uh we know that a two percent loss in um, body weight from fluid can result in performance impairments right um, performance impairments that are more predominantly um, neurological based. So when we, when we think of neurological base, we are thinking um, stuff like, for example, powerlifting, mm. what your nervous system is doing impacts your capacity yeah, to lift. Huge. Um, things that require a lot of attention. So like um, motor car driving, um, fighting base sports, which is neurological um, in that context. Yeah. It's not really going to affect things like aesthetically aesthetic sports like bodybuilding or say for example mm. uh, um, a diver but even stuff like golf it affects um, how well hydrated they are is also complicated with the sports we deal with because you factor in they have weigh-ins yeah and water is one of the biggest targets for modifying quickly what your weight is mm. leading into the competition with every fighting sport, with every powerlifting sport, do you have a weigh in, whether that's one hour, two hour, 24 hour weigh in. So people generally like it's culturally not accepted to, you know, want to diet leading into a competition, probably um, similar to what you've dealt with before where, oh no, we're not going to be able to perform very well if we're, if we're dieting. Um, and the culture is to feed into that. Um, with um, sports like, uh, fighting, they usually do like an eight-week fight camp and mm. and then they diet for the last 10 weeks. So I, f I turn away so many fighters because I, they'll come to me saying, oh, I've got 15 kilos to lose in 10 days. Jesus. Um, or I, I want to lose five kilos overnight. Um, and to me, I'm like, well, we can do it, but why would you want to? Because you, you're not going to fight very well the next day. Like even with 24 hours recovery time, it's not enough time to get you back to mm. maintenance where it's not going to affect your nervous system. And in a sports that's in sports that are highly um, reliant on good neurological functioning, uh, a slight delay in response, a slight delay mm. in um, um, how the motor neuron is fired to the muscle can cause, you know, a slight little turn, which affects your lifting capacity or affects your ability to land a punch or a kick in the time frame that you need it to. So with a lot of the fighters, I'll say, no, we won't do it. Or I'll say, I'll take you on, but not for this comp, for the next one. And we start putting um, 
stuff in place now. This is how I pro- this is how I plan. This is how I process, mm. so that we're not modifying your water weight. So much of it too is like I've, I've worked with a few fighters, and it's so much in their their culture. Yeah, and their coaches too. Like they drive them into weight classes as well. It's yep. like you're going into well, this one. Urban mythology is huge in fighting, isn't it? It's like shit that they used to do. Fuck, some of them still do handstands for an hour because they think it'll take weight off and sh- like shit they used to do 50 years ago for so, some reason. Fighting is probably I've seen the most dangerous stuff happen in that. Yeah. Um, with regards to like nutritional strategies leading mm. into the competition and it's unfortunately um, an area where um, as a sports dietitian, like we're not dominated in that. The people dominating that advice are coaches who are probably ex-fighters themselves. So it's like just this cultural thing of this is what we've always done. Mm. It's not safe. It's not best practice. Um, but it's, you know, like it's a boys club. It's trying to infiltrate into that is really hard and they're unlikely to want to go to someone outside of that sort of arena um, if they're not familiar with the culture and familiar with the practices. Mm. Um, or even, you know, I, I, I found... Um, probably because I'm a, a small little female with strength-based sports, with power-based sports, with fighting-based sports, um, I'm sort of overlooked because of, you know, who I am. I'm a female. I'm a small little female. It doesn't necessarily mean I um, am not familiar with everything or the nuances that happens yeah. or have best practice in order to, to get to people where they need to go. Fucking stupid, isn't it? I've seen some, yeah, I've seen some crazy stuff with them too. Like the mount, the mount, the mount, something like, because I've worked with some of them at high level and they wanted me to do strength training with them. And it's like, I don't know how barely we can fit any more strength training in there when you're training two, three times a day yeah. already. They're kicking off with a half marathon. Massive, massively under eating for the amount of work that they're doing. Absolutely. Massive, like just a little deficit, like in the amount of output they're doing. And it's like, we can't squeeze training in unless you get rid of this much training. Yeah. And then we work on getting that food up. Yeah. You but- know. That eight, that their eight week camps that they do are intense, mm. and they like they burn their nervous system out leading into it, and then want to do things like, you know, cut ten kilos of weight leading into, <laughs> and then fight to the fucking death, the and next then day. F- fight to death. It's, <laughs> I, so it, it, it's interesting. I remember reading that they um they linked. Oh God, I can't remember where I read it, but they they um they decided to add weight classes because they found that brain trauma as a result of knockouts was like a lot more common in the low weight classes yeah. when it came to professional boxing. And they found it just never happened at the, 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 the bigger guys. And the reason I think is, and you may just completely shoot me down here, but it was linked to aggressive cutting. Yeah, because yeah. the the bigger guys, um, essentially anything over 100 kilos, those guys don't even diet. Yeah. they They compete into that. And they train at that all year it's round. Just as it's as big as you can be, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the bigger guys, they don't do generally as a as a rule as a standard rule. They will not do any dieting practices at all. Mm. So there's not all the risky behaviours associated with it. And there's if you don't have all those risk factors associated with it, they're going to perform better. Mm. Um, if you, I don't know if anyone else has gone into a diet before. Your nervous system is shot when you're in a diet and when you're really dehydrated, your nervous system is shot. Even your delay in reaction time is shot. Um, There's also, you know, like what's the inside of your brain looking like if you're not hydrated enough? 
Is mm. there enough cushion there? Is there enough cushion <laughs> there? There's, there's all these questions and factors. It, it's going to make you more vulnerable to injury if you can't react as quickly and if your body is in, in a state where it can mm. accommodate that. The problem you've, is you've with had changing. Cut, right? You've had athletes do water cuts, right? Yeah. The, 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 I think the problem with federations trying to trying to regulate these practices by changing weight classes and stuff is never going to work because it's just the Too attitude. Culturally. The yeah. attitude is like they're always going to find the most competitive edge. Mm. If there's another weight class there, it's like, oh, can I reach that one? They're, they're going to want to tip down to the ones that give them the advantage when they're, when they're caught, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I've had fighters that want to compete two weight classes below where they stay at all year round. And my recommendation has always been two, two to three kilos for a fighter, you shouldn't be competing below two to three kilos. So two three kilos we can deal with anything more than that with what your fight camps are like and the and the load that's on your body you're not going to perform where you need to be so what's the point in going to a weight class below the one you already need to be in to then perform like shit yeah you're not going to win that fight anyway interesting yeah yeah and like you said i, I have i have had people water cut and it's it's something i generally always don't recommend mm. it's probably been like maybe two or three um these guys are going to win world championships and yeah they're, they're going to take the bigger risks because but there's a the better there's, there's clearly a better strategy so <laughs> De- depends how much you have to water cut with them it was a big mm. it was big so this guy i had one was he wanted to take the all-time all-time squat record in the 90 kilo which is 362 at 90 kilos and um he was 17 kilos away from being he's been down there before and he wanted to go he already hit the weight he wanted to go hit that squat he wanted to go down and hit it again and um i think we died it off something like we died off like 10 kilos no we died off like eight kilos and this is a short period of time too mm-hmm. And then water cut, water cut the rest. And he 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 said he felt good, but he didn't perform. Yeah. On that day, um, and it's, it's always the same. So it's like it's after it's after a certain amount of weight, they don't never bounce back. Yeah. So. Yeah, most of them haven't been the best. Mm. Actually, I don't think they've ever been the best outcome. I don't think any of them have been a good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> unless it's and unless it's a tiny amount. Yeah. None of them have had when it, when we start hitting when we start hitting that you know five six seven eight nine ten oh, kilos that's all so, over Red Rover. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it make I guess it makes sense on paper. Like a lot of this shit makes sense when you think of it as a one plus one equals two equation. But as you've said, it's so nuanced, person to person and situation to situation. And then when you're at the top, those margins are even wider. That it's just never going to be the case, is it? There's just so much more going on. That you're probably right. You should just focus on maximizing everything you can. At you know, like this, it's not going to give you the edge you want, really, if you've not done everything else you need to do. I guess so. Mm. No, no, it's definitely you've definitely opened my eyes. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, ah, uh, yeah, I'm well, I, that. I mean, we've got <laughs> what have we got? Another forty minutes, so we're we're pushing two hours now. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You're yeah, thank you. <laughs> I could have gone for another like five took- hours. I had to push you. I had to push you to come in a little bit, didn't I? <laughs>
You didn't do so bad. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. I was, I was sitting strategizing. It was like, how can I make her feel a bit comfortable? <laughs> it's like, I get her in, I got to get her in, I got to get her on a tangent. I got to get her on a tangent. Yeah. So I'm just not usually good as soon as there's a camera. Yeah, Gus said. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is like, you're kind of just looking at us, right? And we're having a conversation. Yeah. So it's different than looking, it's not obvious that there's cameras involved. Yeah. Yeah. But we're trying to get better at that. Too. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. It kind of helps that the um, it blends into the dark background. Too. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. All right. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>